Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, as always, is Matt Risby. Hi Matt. Hello. And returning to the show, a writer for Pajiba.com, a co-host of the Bloodsucking Feminist podcast and a writer for uh, Biblio Days, it's Kaylee Donaldson. Hi Kaylee, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me. Good to talk in. Good. Uh, how how have you been in the six months or so since you were last on the show? Uh, good. I write for more places. I'm back at university doing my master's degree in film studies, and I've just started my application to do a PhD in it. So that's going to be a really very busy time that I haven't entirely accounted for yet. So yeah, I don't need sleep. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, it's for the week. That's that's as far as uh, I'm concerned. This. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've I've hardly been getting any sleep the last couple of weeks due to work. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I sympathise, but it's mm. it's nice it's nicer to be busy than to have absolutely nothing on. That mm. is very true, and I am quite enjoying uh, the fact that I get to excuse watching David Lynch and Billy Wilder movies as important coursework because mm. I'm writing my dissertation on Twin Peaks. So. Oh, cool! Very nice. Higher education is the best. See <laughs> school kids. So we'll start off with a little bit of news before we get onto our main topic, our spooky Halloween topic. But uh, so we'll talk about some of the big news stories this week. I think the biggest one, certainly within film Twitter circles, was the debut of the trailer for Phantom Thread, the latest film from Paul Thomas Anderson, which not uh, not much was known about until very, very recently. Like literally this week, people started finding out plot details and the trailer was you know, it sent out ripples of excitement throughout the cinephile community. Uh, what were your, uh, your guys' thoughts on this, starting with uh, you, Kaylee? Totally in the tank for Paul Thomas Anderson in general. I am the mm-hmm. person that thinks Inherent Vice is his best movie. Come at me. Uh, so I'm very excited for this one, especially since we didn't really know anything about it until the trailer dropped. There were rumours kind of circulating. The one that I had heard was that it was going to be the artsy version of Fifty Shades of Grey in the fashion world with Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm. which I'm still kind of hoping it is because that would be amazing. From what we see, understand, it's more about a sort of uh, creator-muse relationship between a dressmaker named Reynolds Woodcock, which is the, the greatest fictional name of the year, and his mm-hmm. uh, younger fashion muse and this sort of um, very torrid relationship that they have. Uh, I'm always really interested when Daniel Day-Lewis goes quiet because I think mm. when he last worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, which was, of course, There Will Be Blood, it's a very bombastic, very loud, very Daniel day Lewisy kind of performance. And it's been a while since we've seen him go, you know, a little quieter. And he, because he's obviously been so selective with projects, and now he's... Okay, I don't for a minute believe he's retiring. Can <laughs> I just say that? No. I don't think it's happening. I don't think anyone does. No, it's like every time Hayao Miyazaki says he's going to retire, it's like, sure, I'm writing it all down. It's definitely going to happen. <laughs> Um, so I think he'll be back in like six or seven years after he's made a few more shoes or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really interested. Miyazaki, Daniel Day-Lewis and Steven Soderbergh are absolutely fucking awful at retiring. <laughs> you know, this is the same thing where like Quentin Tarantino says he's going to make 10 films on retirement. It's like, no, you're not. Like, like just, just drop that fact. You know it's not going to happen. It's a nice story, but it's not going to happen. Mm. In the case of Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm interested to see how that plays out when the inevitable Oscar campaign starts out, because I'm sure Gary Oldman will mm. have something to say about that. Um, but I, I, I love everything Paul Thomas Anderson does. I'm excited to see if this continues, if it's his trend of his films becoming less and less concerned with appealing to wider audiences. Yeah, it, it certainly looks that way just from the 
the pacing of the trailer and the way it, you know it's it's very well constructed and it looks very lavish but there's not a huge amount there that you can kind of really dig your teeth into which is exciting because obviously it creates a sense of allure but it's interesting that we've seen we now know what the movie looks like and we have a sort of idea what it's about but we still don't really know that much about it which is really exciting and i honestly the less concerned that paul thomas anderson is with appealing to the masses kind of the more that i like him mm. you know you, i mean there will be blood did surprisingly well with audiences but the master is a really abrasive movie that doesn't give a crap about that mm-hmm. and then you have inherent vice which is just uh, the really fun artsy version of hanging out with stoners um and i love it i absolutely but it did like absolutely no business at the box office because i think people realize it's nothing like it's super fun trailer it's much more languid it's much less concerned with actually moving forward with it or even dealing with its incredibly convoluted plot which is you know that's thomas tension so with phantom fred trailer it does seem more committed to being like yep this is probably going to be a very very languid movie something that's not going to appeal to everyone but I mean, surely Daniel Day-Lewis will be what gets a lot of people in the door. I mean, he got people, he got some people to see Nine, so he's got that kind of power. <laughs> yeah, I think it has the the exact reverse effect of Inherent Vice in that the the trailer gives you one impression and then the film gives you another. Um, it's going to be the reverse of that because the trailer is very kind of like staid and kind of like it, don't don't you go. Uh, <laughs> I must please please stay. I, I I must go. Um, it's very kind of like um, regal drama. Uh, it kind of feels like, and um, I'm happy. If it was any other director than Thomas, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I'd have just watched that and let that that trailer kind of just slip me by. Um, but I know that there's going to be uh, way more to it, and um, I'm secretly hoping for. I'm going to hope right up until I see it for the fifty, the, the art house Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, it totally could still be that because, like I say, there's so the only thing we know about it is that it kind of is a bit like eight and a half and also that Paul Thomas Anderson is now his own director of photography, which is kind of a new development, uh, which is mm. interesting. He's already taking on so much <laughs> that he's deciding, yeah, I'm the only one who can make my movies look that way again, look the way I want them, which is interesting. But yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if when the first reviews come out is they say that, oh yeah, there's a whole element of this movie, which is that it's like uh, lust caution or something. Mm, yeah, I want less eight and a half, more nine and a half weeks. <laughs> I hope someone uses that quote on a poster somewhere. That's just far too perfect to waste. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone already has. Um, but if if they do want to use it, um, uh, my Twitter handle is at the wooden kimono, <laughs> and uh, I'll I'll do it for a lean two percent <laughs> of what I don't know. Just uh, like you know, just. Uh, I'll, I'll put it on the poster without even having seen yeah, the film. Yeah, 2% of a film critic's salary is probably not going to be a huge amount, but I guess you could... Mm, just like half a digestive yeah. biscuit. You get, we, we've all got to make by, uh, get by somehow. Um, the other mm. One of the other big news stories, and the most recent uh, breaking, is that Suburbicon, the latest movie by George Clooney, has uh, tanked abysmally at the box office. It opened in ninth place on uh, more than 2,000 screens, which is, is very bad. Uh, if it was on 200 screens mm. and it opened in ninth place, everyone would be saying, oh, that's pretty impressive. But uh, as it is, it was in 2,000 screens. I think it earned about $2.4 million and was amongst the worst wide debuts for Paramount ever. What went wrong <laughs> with Suburbicon, do we think? Uh, everything. <laughs> mm. um, I should say that I actually quite liked that first trailer but it seems like that trailer and the movie itself have absolutely nothing in common because mm. that trailer makes it look mm. like 
Well, essentially, it looks like a Coen Brothers movie because they wrote the script, but they wrote the script in the 80s, around the time that they made Blood Simples. So this has been sitting on a shelf for a long time, and I think that ideas and tastes and sensibilities have changed, particularly when it comes to the topic of dealing with race in America and film. And one of the plots of the film, which is not in the trailer at all, mm. is telling sort of a fictionalized version of real-life events of a, a black family who were the first black family to move into this you know, perfect American suburban neighborhood. But how do you combine that with a story that looks like, you know, well, like Blood Simple or like, you know, a movie that should have John Turturro in the lead, directed mm. by the Coen brothers. I think the reviews were what put off a lot of people because most of the reviews I read were just sort of astounded by what they'd seen, especially out of the festival circuit. And people were kind of hyped for this film because I think George Clooney is a very erratic director. I think he can make some really great stuff, and then other times you wonder if he just wanted a nice holiday somewhere. <laughs> like, like Monuments Men seems to have been made because he just wanted to hang out with a bunch of his friends and talk about art. Yeah. But something like, um, uh, what's it? Good night and good luck. Is that it? Mm, yes, that's a, the good one. Is, yeah, that, that's that's like that's a really tightly controlled, really very focused film. But I don't know if he's ever really lived up to that since then. Well, certainly not by the looks of Suburbicon. It got beat by. Ge- Geostorm made more money this week than Suburbicon. <laughs> more people wanted to see Jared Butler fire lasers at the weather than Suburbicon. And and it only barely beat it in like its fifth weekend or sixth weekend or however long that's been in theatres. So eight weeks now. I mean that film has even in like Halloween week where it has dropped as low as this, it's still only just lost out to this film, which is mm. but that that's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Mm. mismatch between the the racial storyline and the storyline that the movie is being sold on is something I find fascinating because there was an interview with George Clooney where he essentially said, oh yeah, we had this idea, we wanted to tell this story, but then we remembered there was this old script and we thought, hey, why don't we combine the two? And I was just thinking, when has that idea ever worked <laughs> of just saying, hey, here are these two really completely unrelated ideas, why don't we just kind of smash them together and hope that it all comes out in the wash, uh, which obviously it hasn't. Mm. It's see, it, it's crazy to think that like on paper that movie has got George Clooney, uh, the Coen Brothers, uh, Grant Heslov, who is uh, Clooney's longtime writing collaborator, is on board as well. With the cast has got Matt Damon, um, Julianne Moore, Oscar Isaac, and can just kind of fall so flat and kind of be so warm, like uh, lukewarmly mm. received. Um, it, it's, it appears that when George Clooney does something that has that has a, like a kind of like slightly uh, off kilter comedic sensibility, something like uh, Leatherheads or uh, Monuments Men or this. People just don't seem to be interested. But when he does something serious, um, I think people are a lot more on board. I'm not sure why mm. that is. But how much of that is? I mean, one of the things that came out of the reviews for Suburbicon was this sense that the film is kind of a, like a throwback to that really patronizing era in the 60s when a lot of liberal filmmakers were trying to show how progressive they were and really just talking down to people kind of like you know like guess who's coming to dinner or something mm. where it's all about patting your back on how wonderful you are and there does seem to be a sense of suburbicon being kind of in that realm especially from a lot of reviews like there's absolutely no reason that those two stories should be shut together mm. other than maybe we expect mm. this kind of thing from george clooney because he is kind of the like, you know, Warren Beatty used to be the, the king of Hollywood or the president of Hollywood when it came to progressive liberal issues. And I think Clooney has kind of taken over that. Maybe he's felt an obligation or something. But, you know, I'd rather just watch Good Night and Good Luck or even The Ides of March, which is flawed, but it's at least a very, you know, 
kind of traditionally structured and interesting movie to watch. And it does feel as if he's reaching to try and make a movie for our times. You know, America's very oh god, yes. racially divided country. Mm. It always has been, but you know, the tensions uh, for some reason something 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 happened around November eighth or ninth of last year that really seems to have driven the divide and i can't think what it would be but it seems around then but Mm. um he seems to be trying to do that but the movie from what everyone says is that it's it's just not up to the task of that and so he's he's gone for kind of a lofty goal and missed it whereas something like good night and good luck you know making a movie about the importance of the press and the truth and everything in the height of the bush administration that felt like really kind of putting his credibility on the line and tackling a story that felt important and obviously and obviously the film was rewarded in that regard you know it got a lot of oscars it did fairly well and it got really really nice reviews and this really does feel as if he's maybe maybe tackling something that he just does not have the the cinematic chops or the grammar or even the language really to to really handle mm, plus combined with what appears to be stale material mm. if if the coen brothers have had a script sitting around for 30 or 40 odd years 35 years or whatever and uh, they have not at any point in their long and storied career when they could have got anything made thought, do you know what, let's uh, blow the dust off that one. You know, uh, you don't really have a lot of hope mm. for it. And how often does a film work out when it's written by the Coen brothers but directed by someone else? Um, Gambit. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> was... Bridge of Spies is okay, but yeah. there are moments, like, there are all, there only really flourishes now and then, like Mark Rylance will say something, but yeah, the Coens wrote that, but otherwise... You know, that's a Spielberg movie. Or um, Unbroken, the Angelina Jolie movie, which I actually thought was pretty decent. But you would mm. never know that that was a Coen Brothers film. I think that they are a team who should just tackle their own material. Um, yeah. It's worked out pretty well for them for the past couple of decades. They seem to be doing okay. Yeah, I, I think ironically, the the best people who have directed a Coen Brothers film is, is Crime Wave, the Sam Raimi one from the, the mid-80s. That's at least fun for some of its running time. And very much in keeping with what they were doing themselves that time or what they would mm-hmm. do in a couple of years later with Raising Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this... It's a bit more kind of madcap, wasn't it? Yeah, this feels like, oh, remember that stuff we used to do and don't really do so much anymore. Why don't we just fob that off on Clooney and collect <laughs> the royalties? <laughs> Was that a deal for Hail Caesar or something? Mm, yeah. Just a swap. I, mean, I am interested to see how the events of a certain thing that happened last year end up influencing certain movies. Because I think mm. something like Get Out will inevitably be viewed as a movie of the post-that-dude era, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. it was it probably never... Well, it was intended to certainly be a political response, but not to that particular problem. So I'd be interested to see how films made specifically after that uh, this time with that focus in mind um, get on and how, the, how different that is when it's tackled by a white filmmaker. Yeah. You can say a lot about Clooney, but I don't think anyone ever doubts his intentions. But he is, you know, kind of, I think when people think of the, you know, the smug Hollywood liberal, they'll always think of him in that South Park joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Get Out, I always think about the, jo- the, the joke from that that really f- plays differently post that guy winning was that when uh, Daniel Kaluuya is talking to Bradley Whitford and he says, he talks about how much he loved Obama. And he says, I would have voted him for him three times if I could have. I'm kind of thinking, hmm, hmm. now I'm thinking, who did he vote for? Because <laughs> you know, if, if, if Hillary had won, he'd be like, oh yeah, he probably voted for Hillary. But uh, <laughs> it's part of thinking, maybe, maybe he's one of those 
uh, rich people who decided this time they would go for they would vote for the other really really rich guy allegedly rich guy. Um, <laughs> our final news story of the week is Olivia Coleman joining The Crown, Netflix's hugely successful series about the life of and reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, the character was played by Claire Foy in the original the first series, and then she's going to be playing her in the second. And because each series looks at a different decade of her of of queen elizabeth ii's reign you know they're eventually going to have to choose a different actress and i think uh they honestly couldn't have chosen someone better than olivia coleman who uh is like one of our greatest living actresses mm. it's 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 not immediately obvious casting but it's great casting mm. um and i'm really pleased to do it. i mean i was full disclosure i've never seen the crown um unlikely to watch the crown um but one thing that, um, as some regular listeners will know, I've, I've been away most of this year, um, kind of on my travels, and one thing that, that really surprised me every time I ran into uh, European people is they instantly asked me if I watched The Crown mm. because they absolutely fucking love it. Um, and I was just like, and they were like, oh man, you must be psyched about The Crown, like, you know, and I'm like, well, no, like... <laughs> I mean, some people don't like the Queen. Mm. She's all right. I mean, I've got nothing personal against her, but the idea of a monarchy doesn't seem to fit in with my meritocratical view of the world. Um, so, uh, yeah. So if anything of the Crown does is confirm uh, the stereotype that we, the English people are obsessed with their own monarchy uh, to everyone else in the world. I have friends um, who are American who absolutely love the Crown, and I do think it is a show that is made primarily for Americans. Uh, with it being a Netflix show, obviously it has an instant international audience, but I think it is aimed very specifically at, if not Americans, and certainly non-British people, because there are huge swaths of that show that I've seen, I haven't seen all of the first season, um, where they just have, like, everything comes to a halt and someone explains to Queen Elizabeth, like, how the monarchy works, and you think, well, she would know how this works. <laughs> but it's obviously for the audience to get in on that. But it is that kind of, it's a fascinating, very Netflix-style show. It's designed to be watched in a you know, binge session. It is lavish and very expensive. It allegedly costs about $100 million for that first season. They add all the stuff that you probably couldn't get away with on normal TV, like Matt Smith is arseless. It's got his arse hanging out for quite a bit of that show, actually, as Prince Phillips. <laughs> but it is very kind of worthy and designed to be prestigious and designed to appeal to a certain idea that people have about Britain and their relationship with monarchy, mm. which I personally, as someone who doesn't really care that much about the monarchy, is kind of exhausting. There are interesting elements in it. I mean, you should just watch the first episode because it's got Jared Harris in it and he plays George VI and he's awesome. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even get, get an Emmy nomination for that, which is shocking. Uh, but then you could just stop after that. But I really didn't care about the rest. Although John Lithgow as is, is Winston Churchill is pretty good. Because it's also a show that if you don't like Churchill, is pretty good to watch because it really has him at his lowest point and him just being kind of pathetic. Um, but I, I think Olivia Coleman is phenomenal and she really does feel like a great fit for that. And anything that exposes her to a larger audience, I, I'm very in favour of because I don't think she gets enough credit for being as phenomenal an actress as she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really is easily one of the best in British um, acting right now. But I think that there's a lot of people who still see her as kind of like a comedic side character because of peep show and stuff like mm, that mm-hmm. sure she's completely proven herself as more than that but some people take a little longer to catch up mm. i think um just before i um like commit to watching the first episode kaylee 
Um, when Jared Harris is in it, does he, at any point he roll his sleeves up for a for a kind of like a fist fight, like a fist fight like he does in Mad Men? No, I think that might be in the director's cut or something, <laughs> but that would have been intensely satisfying. Oh, yeah. Just just seeing him, just I could watch him kind of Queensby rules people all day. <laughs> Vile little pimps at Israel family. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that um, next season they do have a gen- JFK is turning up. He's being played by Michael C. Hall. Wow, that's an interesting choice. Oh, I was thinking and Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> that also would be an interesting <laughs> choice. <laughs> would be I, could, I, could, I could see that actually. <laughs> that wouldn't be the worst decision. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's every vaguely Irish American actor's job to at some point play JFK because. Isn't the guy from Burn Notice playing him in that LBJ film as well? The guy who's in... Like, I don't know. Who's in... But I, Is Edward Burns in that? No. <laughs> it's mm. uh, Edward Burns Notice, a new podcast. Yeah. Ed, Ed, Ed Burns is now slightly too old to play JFK, unfortunately, unless you do an mm. alternate timeline where he lived. Uh, mm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the only other thing I have to say about Olivia Coleman is uh, that she is very, very nice to bar staff, as I discovered when i worked at the showroom and she and paddy considine and peter mullen came in for a production meeting about tyrannosaur uh and they're all very lovely people so i just want to get that out there they're they're amongst the nice ones hang on a second you've you've, you've dropped a name on the floor i dropped like Mm. yeah you've dropped them all over my face Ed. there's three of them they're everywhere jesus christ (laughs) you star fucker Listen, I'd also just like to say that it's such an indication of the kind of people who worked in the showroom that that was the most exciting day anyone had ever worked. When those three happened to come in, it was like three Tom Cruises had walked in all at once. Because I was like, oh my God, these are the the gods of slightly miserable um, uh, indie cinema in the north of England. Um, (laughs) So this week, our main topic, because it's Halloween and because uh, the gentleman in question has had quite the year... Uh, it has to, or at least his work has, is Stephen King, who I'm guessing people are familiar with, I would say. Uh, he's uh, probably one of the most successful writers of the 20th century, one of the most influential horror writers, certainly. And this year uh, has been a banner year for adaptation of his work. The aforementioned It has been a runaway success and has now earned $323 million in the US and an appropriately terrifying $666 million globally. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's perfect! That is, I didn't know that. It's so fortuitous. I was looking up the I was looking up the amounts earlier. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> we had no to one needs to see it now. Yeah, they have to take it out of all cinemas so yeah. it finishes on that number. Yeah, like they've made enough. They've made like four hundred million dollars at least profit on it. I think they can be happy with that and a perfect final total. But also, uh, Netflix put out Gerald's Game and Nineteen Twenty Two, both of which have been very well received. Gerald's Game in particular has gotten very very good reviews. The TV show Mr. Mercedes, for anyone who could watch it, because I have no idea what channel that's on. Apparently, it's an AT&T original, which is like, <laughs> it's a, like a joke like off of... Like the internet dif- people? Yeah, it's like a joke off of a, a difficult people that there's an AT&T original drama series, but it, it genuinely exists, and it stars Brendan Gleeson. Um, what? Yeah. And Fuck it, off, that's not real. No, and it would have started... Is that real? Yeah, and it would have starred uh, Anton Yelchin, of course, uh, sadly passed away after they filmed the pilot, so he was replaced with Harry Treadaway. But yeah, it's a it's a grim and dark detective show based on his, his trilogy of novels, and like I say, it's being made by AT&T, so I have no idea how people watch it, but it's got a second season, so clearly some people are. Uh, I'm just baffled by the people <laughs> who are getting into original programming. It's just like, is it going to have next year, like, Nestle's original, like... 
TV miniseries or you know Marks and Spencer's like movie starring you know <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall as JFK. He's a good gateway actor. <laughs> well, we're getting um, Apple TV soon, original. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked that hasn't happened already. Like it's not that impossible. Uh, wow. Also, we had where we live in. Also, we had. I mean, this is not a positive story, but I guess it happened finally. The Dark Tower made it to screens. It wasn't a success, but they finally made it, uh, and it may come back as a TV show. Mm. Uh, the Mist TV series also not successful, but it happened. Uh, and <laughs> next year, you know, it's going full full on. We've got Castle Rock, the Hulu series based on like a bunch of his books. It just kind of had this weird shorts cut esque shared universe where all these characters come together. So, uh, yeah, so I think we'll just start off, like, why is 2017 the year of Stephen King? Why is a 70-year-old guy from Maine currently uh, the the hottest thing in pop culture? Well, I kind of had this thought myself, and whilst I can't give you any definitive answers about why 2017, when I looked through the list of everything he's done, he's just never stopped being popular. Mm. They've never stopped adapting his work. Um, and as someone who has never read a Stephen King book, um, for shame, like I, I don't know whether it's just he's just got that many ideas, and it's just inevitable that, that there'll be ones that stick, and just by virtue of uh, coincidence and, and like statistic probability, that he would have four or five ones that are successful in one year. Mm. It definitely seems like I think in the case of it, I think it's. It's one of those things, like with Star Wars coming back in a big way, is like it's hit the right point in the nostalgia cycle, which is that all these generations of kids grew up watching the miniseries and reading the book, that, mm. but also being kind of disappointed by the miniseries because it couldn't be that bloody because uh, bloody, it was on ABC or whatever, and being primed for a new adaptation of it. And it has been not quite a, 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 uh, a holy grail in the same sense of the dark tower was of this thing that everyone's like oh it would be amazing if they got to happen but it's certainly a thing that for four or five years people have been really excited about so for it to finally come out and be good i think was probably a bonus oh yeah and i think it's also i mean i do think you've got right on the nostalgia part mm. there and you see that with something like stranger things like stranger things doesn't exist without stephen king no yeah that is a film that is made basically because the Duffer brothers grew up reading all of Stephen King's books, particularly in the 80s, something like it. And they were wildly influenced by that. So I think you're seeing a lot of people who grew up reading his work are now making their own stuff. But even before that, his influence is huge and widespreading. He's an immensely prolific writer. He's an immensely popular writer. I mean, right now he writes about a book a year, which is... And that he's not even on cocaine anymore. He's writing a book a year. <laughs> yeah. If you ever get a chance to read some of the stuff he wrote while he was on coke, it is interesting. Yeah. Um, I believe it was one of them actually, which would explain a lot. But he doesn't actually remember writing the Tommyknockers because he was so high. So I, sh- I shouldn't laugh at that. That's cruel. Um, but I think he's a compulsive writer. But he's also so perceptive with ideas of fear and realizing actually the thing that can scare you the most is uncertainty like so much of his work is about being unsure of where you are in the world and unsure of what is real and what isn't Hmm. everyone talks about how scary the clown is and it and he is he's fucking terrifying um but like the most terrifying about it is the idea that something horrific is happening but no one will believe you especially Hmm. the people who are supposed to be in charge you see that theme through a lot of his work. Um, even his uh, non-horror stuff, stuff like 
uh, my personal favourite, which is the Different Seasons collection that has Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me on it, or it's called The Body. He is so perceptive about this particular kind of unease that you never really want to talk about. Um, getting that onto a screen is a different feat altogether, but there's so much of his work to choose that you know, you'll never run out of ideas because he's never going to stop having them. Yeah, the, the fear of being disbelieved, I think, is particularly powerful in It because in the, the new version, one of the most visually striking scenes is one in which Bev having seen this geyser of blood come up out of the sink and soak this entire bathroom so everything is covered head to toe in blood including herself her dad kind of opens the door and asks her what's wrong and then just has this very kind of normal conversation where it becomes clear that he can't see the blood that is dripping down the entire walls and there's something just so intensely unnerving about that of having proof that you are seeing incredible and horrifying things but no one else believes you other than this group of like six people who are also seeing utterly horrifying things. And I think that's why, because there were lots of complaints about the fact that they changed the time setting because the original book is starts in the fifties and then jumps to the eighties. And this time it starts in the eighties for the first movie. And then the, the second movie is going to be contemporary, but watching it, I thought pretty much all of these themes carry over. I mean, you can make new kids on the block jokes now, and that's kind of like the, the only major difference. But in terms of theme, there's not a huge amount different between the, the 50s setting of the book and the 80s setting of the uh, of the movie. How, how many um, films are they going to go for with this reboot? Oh, just the two, so... Yeah, unless they try and turn Pennywise into a Thready-style uh, villain that can just keep <laughs> coming back, which isn't out oh, of the realm of possibility. Just cracking jokes and doing that dance. Oh, I, I hope Bill Skarsgård has checked his contacts. <laughs> yeah, this could be this could be him for the next fifteen years. But yeah, they've <laughs> only got they could at, at least they're going to get two because they have to do the sequel, catching up with the the Losers Club when they're adults. But mm. um, yeah, I, I would I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they just say, hey, you know, we keep we could try and get a whole Pennywise series out of this if we really really tried. Yeah, well, you wouldn't put it past him. No, uh, they'll be finding a way to shoehorn Pennywise into like the Avengers and Justice League and wherever they can. Well, his dad <laughs> is in the Avengers, so yeah, that would be an interesting moment. Oh, he is, yeah. The, the whole Skarsgård family are doing very, very well, except for Alex, who is has ruined his head. By oh, no, don't. It, it's very sad. Some of us are still very sad about that. I'm wondering if that was like the cursed monkey's paw deal he had to do to win that Emmy. <laughs> I, I feel bad for John Carroll Lynch because he's just stolen his <laughs> Oh my god, he does look like the Zodiac Killer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, quick question. Are you telling me that the three Scars Guards are related? Yeah. Oh, there's tons of them. There's way more than eight, than three. You ever but seen like Vikings? The... There's a Scars Guard in that. Oh, wow. This is mind-blowing. I just thought it was a coincidence. <laughs> no, they're, they're like the Barrymores. Like, you just keep turning a rock and there's another one. Oh, wow. Salem's main uh, hobby is procreation. Right, well, there we go. He looks like a man who put it about a bit in the 60s and 70s and probably can't remember where. You he's, know what I mean? he's got kids in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s and 2010s. I think he is going for some sort of record. Or just keeping Sweden populated, you know. <laughs> yeah, if it weren't for yeah. him, the entire film industry would have collapsed when Bergman retired. <laughs> he's, he's kept it going. Mm, fair play to him. Also, like I said, uh, Gerald's game got uh, very good reviews, and I think it's it's interesting that 
we seem to be we seem to have hit a point where we're getting a number of king adaptations that are reasonable they're they're kind of faithful for the materials but they're also delivered with a certain degree of craft and if you look at kind of the different eras of his work that's not always the case like from the late 80s onwards when there was such a wealth of material you did start to get stuff churned out that was really really faithful to his work but also just really crappy uh mm-hmm. sort of your, your children's of the corn and whatnot and the seven or eight different sequels that they made to that and i do wonder if it's like like kaylee said that we're getting to a point where there are people who are being like really influenced by his work but perhaps not they don't feel like the need to just stick to the page entirely they're more willing to say you know what kubrick had some ideas by cutting things out and rearranging things and not trying to transpose his slightly creaky dialogue to the screen Mm. so just a question from someone who hasn't read a stephen king book Mm. uh, aforementioned um what went wrong with the dark tower oh how long have we got um it was was, is it just something that was in production for a long time and it it never really should have got this far or was it just it should never have been a movie or should they have tried to do it as tv or well they're supposed to be doing it as tv like originally this movie was supposed to be like the jumping off point for a whole series. I think they're still going to make a TV series, but they're just going to forget that this film ever happened. Hopefully they'll still mm. include it yourself because that's one of the big decisions they made about it. I mean, really, yeah. first of all, the Kiva Goldsman should never have been near this thing. Like, that why is, is he near flag. any movie? Um, Put the pen down and just leave. You know what I mean? <laughs> he shouldn't be allowed to write things. Just tell him that's that terrible. you need something from the store and then leave when he's gone, okay? <laughs> you shouldn't be doing anything near movies. But I think it's also, I mean, the material itself is very, very heavy. I mean, The Dark Tower is this massive series with about seven or eight books that starts out as kind of a, like a sci-fi western pastiche that then turns into mm-hmm. what King calls his magnum opus. And it's about four and a half thousand pages of genre-bending metafiction where Stephen King turns up as a character at one point and there are multiple universes and mass interrogation of some of the great works of sci-fi and fantasy. There's a lot of Tolkien in there. There's a lot of like Sergio Leone's movies. There's a lot of King Arthur in there. Um, I haven't read them. My auntie has. She loves them. But how do you even begin to turn that into one movie? But how do you turn that into one movie under 90 minutes? Badly. Uh, And I think their decision was that they didn't and they tried to turn it into like a I think it's supposed to be like a sequel to the books. By the That's time the what I've heard, yeah. Um, which is a horrendous idea. Why would you do that? I think they didn't believe in the material. I think that they had the the worry that people are stupid and they won't understand this because nobody is interested in really dense, um, you know, interrogations of sci-fi fantasy genres or anything like that. Like, like Game of Thrones isn't the biggest thing on TV right now. Mm. Um, but given that everyone is now trying to rush to find the next Game of Thrones because that show is going to end soon I'm kind of surprised that HBO or Stars or Showtime or whatever haven't jumped on these books and said let's just do the books you know let's completely commit to them but like, let's commit to them and just believe that people will be into it I think people want something different from their peak TV era I think they want a challenge they want something that they can get wholeheartedly invest in and dissect and try and solve. And this is kind of the, the perfect storm for that. It would certainly take real talent and a budget, but there are plenty of showrunners who I think would do you know, an immense job with that. Just not a Kiva Goldsman. 
<laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And King himself has has basically said that even though he he does consider the Dark Tower to be his magnum opus, he also has said if I had the time, I would go back and like streamline it and rewrite it all because it was written over the course of like thirty years and there are some things that don't align. I mean, he did rewrite the first book at one point and just added a bunch of stuff to make it more in line with what would later happen. And I think if, like you say, if like a HBO wanted to get behind it and say to Stephen King, hey, that's what we want to do as well. We want to take this and maybe offer the chance to do that more streamlined version that you maybe could get something really special. And I think Westworld demonstrated that there is an audience out there for kind of slightly heady genre bending, uh, serialized drama and that is a perfect uh, fit for something like the dark tower which if you prune out some of the less fruitful uh uh divergences you could probably come up with something like really really fascinating and you mm. know it's a western which also takes at some point goes to our world so it probably isn't that difficult to shoot in terms of locations and stuff uh like special mm. effects and stuff you're gonna have to shell out for but i think there is there is a lot of opportunity there to create something really bold and interesting which probably isn't going to happen now or at least isn't going to happen until the tv series fails and someone else gets the rights Mm, and like kaylee says it's like it people have shown and proved that they are have an appetite for this kind of thing and i can understand 15 or 20 years ago you don't want to be the first one you don't want to be taking the risk um, but now that you know there's precedent and you know there's stuff on on TV now that fits that bill that is ending soon, um, there is a void that could easily be uh, filled, and I, I kind of, in a way, would rather kind of absorb that kind of thing in a TV show rather than having to try and condense it down to ninety deeply unsatisfying minutes. <laughs> yeah, I was I was very tempted to watch the dark the dark tower in preparation for this and i was just like it's only available to buy at the moment for like 20 dollars. i thought oh, i really i can't put i did that for batman versus superman last year for this show and it's just like i can't do it again i can't you can't be burned twice i can't have the two films i own digitally be <laughs> batman versus superman <laughs> and the dark tower like not when i don't own any good movies um <laughs> yeah it, also in terms of like i think i think it's uh interesting in terms of his influence because uh if you look at something like lost lost is basically uh, damon lindelof and carlton coos have said that they used the stand as their their bible essentially for what they wanted lost to be in this kind of thing that takes place on an epic scale all of these characters which gradually get separated separated out into different camps that are good and bad and that also makes me wonder if if we're ever going to see a good adaptation of that book as well because that's another hefty tome similar to to the dark tower also to it where you think there's some elements of this that feel really commercial and could work but also it's kind of very in in a hollywood that is obsessed with franchises you could i guess you could split it up into two movies or whatever but you know there's not a huge amount there to kind of turn it into this multi-part franchise thing you know it starts with a flu that kills pretty much everyone on earth and then it ends with an atomic bomb going off. There's not a huge amount of room there for it to be kind of like dragged out over years and years and years. Weren't they going to drag it out over years and years and years though? Like, wasn't there talk that they wanted to make like five movies out of it or something? That's true, yeah. When Wasn't like Ben Affleck going to direct it yes. as well? There was... Oh, poor Ben. 
If that was only the worst thing that has happened to your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 brief period of time after Gone Baby Gone came out, where it's like, uh, or after the town, where it's like, oh, the world's his oyster, and then suddenly it's like, hey, do you want to be Batman? Sure, why not? That was a that was a bad choice. I, I I'm sure that someone is going to greenlight that now that Ed is being big. Like, there's absolutely mm. no way that you know every studio producer isn't scrambling through King's you know bibliography and going, right, what hasn't been done yet, or what do people like that we really want to see. Mm that or they're just going to try ripping off it in other ways i mean it didn't just make 666 million it's now ninth highest grossing film of the year mm. like it grossed more money than a transformers movie which i don't think any of us saw happening i mean like i'm actually sort of obsessed with how transformers has flopped like that's a whole other thing mm. uh, but it's now top logan which is now at number 10 so I think it's got a good chance of staying in the top 10 by the end of the year. I mean, what's going to beat it? Thor Ragnarok and Star Wars, I think, are really the only two big ones. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I think it's shown that there is a hunger for that kind of movie. And I don't think it's all exclusively nostalgia. I think that there is something to be said for putting money into horror. Mm. You know, it isn't a pricey movie. But generally speaking, most horror movies are made very, very cheap these days. And they're made... You know, so you put out at Halloween for like four or five weeks, make back their budget and then leave. Like the Bloomhouse formula is doing very well right now. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's a very $5 million movie. It's obviously something that people are very fond of or have really good memories of. Uh, but it's something that was also designed to appeal to an adult audience. And how often do we see movies nowadays that are designed to appeal to, you know, adults? It doesn't really happen that often. Um, and I think that that may be some, you know, little explored territory that we could see with more m- movies coming out that take on King's work. You know, he has, I think he has written for kids, actually. Um, I haven't read any of that stuff. Uh, but there, there's obviously an audience that's hungry for stuff like that. And, and then something like Gerald's Game, it's a Netflix movie, so it plays by a different set of rules. But could you imagine going into a pitch meeting with the story for Gerald's Game? And trying to get that like fun- funding for a cinema release, like right. So there's this couple, and they're doing some weird sex games, and then one of them dies, and the other's chained to the bed, and she starts hallucinating. Can I have money, please? Like you could never do that. <laughs> oh, and there's a necrophiliac. Yeah. Just a bit, just a bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just just yeah, a pinch, just you know, like a sprinkle on top. Played by the giant from Twin Peaks, who I mean is obviously having a moment, but not the. the it's a good year man. for him, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think also the thing that's really nice about Gerald's Game and 1922, which I wasn't as uh, happy, uh, as pleased with as Gerald's Game, which I thought was a really, really good little movie, um, is mm-hmm. that they don't really star anyone famous. Like Carlo Gugino's great and Bruce Greenwood's great and Tom Jane uh, is is like a, an actor I really, really enjoy. But, you know, in, not just in terms of pitching that. If you just said, hey, remember the guy who was the lead in that that Stephen King movie that came out 10 years ago that wasn't very successful. We want to build a whole movie about him. Or, you know, the, the old captain from the new Star Trek who we killed off. Yeah, they're not <laughs> big names. So it's just kind of nice that they seem Netflix and uh, have settled on this thing where they say, hey, why don't we just make these movies with interesting filmmakers with these stories that are quite popular with actors who are really good for the part, and which is all kind of seems very, very novel in, uh, in contemporary Hollywood. Well, that's another thing that comes with it. Like, you can't really cast stars in that. Mm, um, yeah. I mean, who's the biggest kid? There's, there's that one kid that's in Stranger Things, and then you have 
Pennywise being played by that guy whose dad is, you know, in, in the <laughs> Avengers and Mamma Mia. Um, but no one goes to that movie because they're a massive Bill Skarsgård fan. No offense to Bill, but mm. like, you know, I don't think there was a lot of Hemlock Grove fans, you know, screaming at the door for him there. Yeah. Um, but that's I, I'm interested to see how that kind of develops, just because we're in this very interesting place in Hollywood right now. Box office revenue is down. Audience attendance at cinemas is way down, especially in North America. They had this, one of the most dire summers they've had in recent memory. Mm. Um, that's how you had stuff like Transformers not doing as well as it should have, or these massive flops like uh, The Mummy or King Arthur, which I didn't think was that bad, actually. Um, but one of the things that's filling that gap has been TV and Netflix. But um, they, we're in this weird sort of situation where there's not really an A-list style system anymore. You know, everything is now by franchises or, you know, well-known properties. And I think Stephen King kind of fills that niche. I mean, how many offers command that kind of power? Like J.K. Rowling, but she's tied specifically to one franchise. Mm. Um, or even E.L. James, you know, but it, like Stephen King has much more range than that. Yeah, and, and that's why even when a movie comes out like that movie, A Good Marriage or A Perfect Marriage, which came out a couple of years ago, which wasn't very, very good and was just kind of a kind of bad drama. But the fact it was billed as Stephen King's A Good Marriage made people kind of pay attention. Say, oh, yeah, OK, sure, I'll check that out. Oh, that was bad. But, you know, or going back further, something like Hearts of Hearts from Atlantis, Hearts of, it, of Atlantis, that movie with... Anthony Hopkins, which also wasn't very good and was very treacly. But there is that sense that very few authors have now unless they write a series that becomes successful where their name goes on something. And at the very least, you'll kind of perk up and go, oh, okay, sure. Uh, Which uh, is an underrated uh, quality in Hollywood, I think, of just that slight getting the foot in the door of saying, oh, I've heard of that. Sure. Why don't I just kind of check it out on Netflix? How do Dan Brown's books do as films? I know that they're probably loose bowel water in terms of their quality, but you know, do people go and see the movies because it's Dan Brown, or is it just because it's part of that Da Vinci Code thread? Have they done movies of his outside of that? I don't know. Has he written books outside of that? He has, actually. Before the Da Vinci Code, there was a couple of thrillers which are, I think, more, more readable trash. Then the Robert Langdon series became, although I hadn't read Edmund since I was a teenager and I'm a lot less masochistic as a reader than I was at that time. Um, I think the Dan Brown thing is much more about a very fleeting kind of hype related to... I mean, remember when Da Vinci Code came out, all of this scandal about that book? Mm. Which mm. seems so silly in retrospect, because that book is so not worth it. <laughs> uh, but there's also something to be said about books that you can buy at a Walmart or books that you can buy at the airport when you really just need something to pass the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know it is that kind of popular fiction, but I don't know if it's necessarily propelling people to the cinemas. Like Inferno did okay last year, but it wasn't the you know the massive rave hit that I mean the Da Vinci Code made a lot of money, and I think even Angels and Demons made a lot of money and is actually reasonably watchable. But I think that that can only carry you so far. There aren't you know hosts you know lists of people who are devoted to Brown in the way that they're devoted to someone like Stephen King. One, because Stephen King is a far better writer. Two, because Stephen King has a lot more work. But I think King also just taps into something much more interesting, whereas Dan Brown is, I think he would see himself as something more worthy than a Mm. beach read, but that's essentially what he is. 
Whereas I think King has real literary cred, even if the critics took a long time to catch up with him on that. I mean, he spent decades being pilloried by critics as just trash, and he's obviously far more than that. Yeah, I think it's very interesting with King in that one of the things that's really wonderful about him is how unpretentious he is as both an artist and as a, as just a, a personality. Like, if you read on writing where he's... Which has become, rightly, a kind of a classic of the the books that everyone who wants to try to write ends up reading. Like, he is just kind of like saying, I, I don't know, I just sit down and write. And then the books happen. And that's kind of that's kind of his approach to it, is he doesn't necessarily view himself as this kind of great artist, but he has become one because he's he's just fantastically gifted at it. And I think one of the I was and trying to think of well, like what are the things about his work that always seem to really shine through I think an underrated quality of him as a writer is just how strong and clear his sense of morality is like a lot of his books are concerned in even obliquely with like things about like justice and rightness and the fact that most of his villains are bigots or representations of capitalism or whatever I think it's really interesting that his his work ends up being really timeless because essentially he's his heroes are always battling against some form of injustice and that you know i think it's very hard for people to look at that and say maybe the coke brothers i guess probably don't dig him but most people look at his work and be just kind of like yeah sure i'll side with a a group of kids who are trying to stop a killer clown or or who are being bullied and you know want to take those guys down by chucking rocks at him you know it's hard not to side with his heroes because they're always going against some even some minor indignity that everyone can more or less get behind. I think he also writes really interesting protagonists. I mean, everyone makes the joke that they're all writers from Maine who have alcohol problems, which, you know, a <laughs> lot of them do. But there's something to be said about a really good, flawed protagonist, particularly. I mean, mm. and his protagonist can be, you know, brutally flawed. And it's often like watching the guy just kind of beat up on himself. Uh, like there are certain like periods, particularly after he stopped taking cocaine, where you really just see him trying to like take himself through therapy in his work. I mean, read something like Misery for that, which is also a really great movie. Uh, but you know, there's so much that you can mine from that. And if you want to, uh, particularly now where we have better technology and CGI to do something like Pennywise Justice, uh, you could probably do something like The Stand. Um, there are certain, you know, there are adaptations that haven't quite held up in that aspect just because the the technology wasn't there. But there is something in, you know, always timeless about having the shit stared out of you. Mm. Yeah, I I watched the Dark Half, the uh, George A. Romero adaptation of his book, which is essentially him coming to terms with the fact that his alter ego was exposed to the world. Uh, and it's a really fun movie, particularly if you want to see Timothy Hutton play a dual role and. But the entire final act involves just a swarm of birds descending on a house and kind of pecking people to death. And the effects for that don't really do justice to the terror of that image. Uh, it does just like look like Michael Rooker kind of like way, holding his arms up and kind of walking as if he's walking against a very strong wind with unconvincing birds kind of superimposed <laughs> over it. And like, even though that's a really fun movie, and I do think it's one that people uh, would enjoy for lots of reasons, the spe- special effects are the thing that makes you think, yeah, this probably, I can see why this uh, ended up defeating Romero in some regards. Every now and then you get like the really great meeting of, you know, material and filmmaker. Mm. Um, and I think that there is something very malleable about King's work that makes him suitable for a lot of great filmmakers. I mean, something like Dead Zone is a very 
un-Cronenberg movie in many ways. Hmm. Uh, I think someone described it as being, it's the Stephen King Cronenberg movie for anyone who doesn't like Stephen King or David Cronenberg, <laughs> which I don't yeah. think entirely does it justice, but it is actually ends up being a really interesting fit for Cronenberg. He deals with a more visceral kind of body horror, but this is one more rooted in the psychological that King's very good at. Or even Kubrick in that aspect, and I know that King hates The Shining, and I understand why he hates The Shining. I don't think he's wrong about Shelley Duvall's character. Um, yeah. But I think that, that what that film does very well is capture just that constant sense of dread and that sense that of disorientation. You never know what's happening. I mean, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the, the architecture of the building keeps changing while people walk through it. And when you realize that that's what's happening, that's truly scary. And there are images in that movie that just linger with me to this day. And I've seen that movie countless times. It's one of my, you know, our family's favorites. With all respect to the original material, which I do enjoy. It is, I mean, I think if you're looking for a, a King book to start with, The Shining is a pretty good one to go with, if you're interested. But there are things that I'm glad that were omitted from that adaptation, like, you know, like the talking topiaries and things like that. You know, we're okay, we don't need that. Um, but, like, that's an interest. I think the, the material is so fluid that you can do something like radically change characters or scenes and it can still feel very King-esque. Although mm. I do understand why he doesn't like The Shining in terms of not just Shelley Duvall, but you know, Jack Nicholson definitely starts that movie crazy and continues. You don't really get the build-up of him losing his mind, but you know, yeah. it's scary Jack Nicholson, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why uh, I always really liked Christine as well as a, an example of just material and filmmaker really meeting in the middle nicely like john carpenter has very he's very good at mood and texture and christine is a book about mood and texture built around a very silly premise and i think the 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 difference between a king adaptation that works and a king adaptation that doesn't in a lot of time a lot of times is literally like how well does the filmmaker handle what could be a ridiculous premise that's the reason why uh, maximum overdrive which hilariously was made by king himself and demonstrates that even he can't quite get the balance right when it comes to making the movie um you know there it's like he doesn't really do much to sell the idea of oh how terrifying would it be if all the machines on earth suddenly became sentient and wanted to beat the shit out of everyone else on earth uh which is just kind of a very silly high concept twilight zone premise that he doesn't quite grasp but uh, Carpenter does such a good job of building the tension around the idea of like a haunted killer car that that movie ends up becoming much more eerie than it really has any right to because th- under any normal circumstances that movie unless you're doing it as like a cheesy 50s B movie shouldn't be remotely like interesting or scary but he he somehow managed to make it work. In fairness to King he's not really one of those filmmakers who works well while on coke. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, that movie does have an ACDC soundtrack, though, so I can't entirely write it off. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I really respect about King is he's a man that believes in his collaborators, and he's a man that believes in his editors. Mm. Um, you know, he's always talked about the importance of having someone check over his work. I think there was a period where he stopped doing that, and then he kind of realized that that was dumb, which is something that Anne Rice <laughs> really should have realized a long time ago. Um, but you see that a lot with films. Like, he's actually okay to let filmmakers, you know, go their own route. I think even after The Shining, as much as that disappointed him, he got a second go at it with the miniseries, which wasn't very good. But he's, he's really okay to let other people just kind of go off and do their thing. 
because I think even he realizes there are certain things that work so well in his books that just can't work well on screen. There are certain things that you can do, like, you know, he's really good at descriptions. You know, he mm. can spend pages describing, like, a table, and you can completely imagine that the life that this table has had, but you can just show that on screen in, like, two seconds. So it's really good for condensing stuff like that. But creating a kind of, that kind of psychological trauma is a little harder mm. without going all David Lynch and June and just having people kind of whisper their feelings and thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, and I think Lynch is also, it just reminded me, I remember reading a quote from Stephen King in which he was talking about, like, the kind of filmmakers who adapt his movies, and he specifically said, uh, he was specifically very dismissive about Lynch. He was, like, saying, oh, there's a reason why people like David Lynch haven't have never adapted one of my books. And I was when I was watching Twin Peaks recently, I thought, oh, David Lynch probably could have done a really good Stephen King adaptation because Twin Peaks and It have a lot of very similar preoccupations. Uh, and I just kind of find it very weird that that's the the one filmmaker that he looked at and said he couldn't do one of my books. I think uh, he probably could. It probably would have been pretty good as well. I totally have done it. I mean, there is nothing in pop culture that scared me as much as that moment in Twin Peaks where Bob crawls across the couch. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. I have seen that show so many times and that episode so many times. It still scares the crap out of me. But I think he could give it a go. I don't know what he. I don't know what materials he do though. Need to think about that one. Maybe, maybe if you know he's now back making films after Twin Peaks, maybe someone could just give him the stance. Oh, wow, like, just do what deep. you want with it, David. It's fine. <laughs> Even what mine. Yeah. If... Or what, what about Maximum Overdrive reboot? <laughs> he would just make it with like jazz music. It. He would just cut the ACDC and make it the exact same movie. I was also thinking about filmmakers that haven't made king movies i i was just trying to think it's so weird that stephen king uh stephen spielberg never adapted a stephen king book because they're two titans of american pop culture they both kind of arose in prominence at more or less the same time and they both like or liked to tell very similar stories about kind of a a very particular kind of american um growth and and childhood and whatever and it really does seem like at some point their paths would have crossed but it's kind of weird that that never actually ended up happening no well the kind of duffer brothers have done it for him haven't they they made a kind of a steven spielberg mm. stephen king crossover yeah i guess that is probably the closest we're going to get but i was kind of thinking that there seemed like if if he hadn't suddenly became serious in the 80s with with color purple and then going through like the rest of the, the stuff he did in the 90s maybe that would have been something he would have been drawn to because like it does seem like he could have done it really well in the 80s or he could have even now if he wasn't instead of deciding to adapt like an Ernest Klein book he wanted to make the stand like I don't think anyone would be that mad at him for it I would take that swap like no question (laughs) actually yeah that's true Ernest Klein might be mad oh he'll buy himself another DeLorean and write something really sexist he's fine (laughs) did you know that he likes movies you guys he's a geek did you know that Mm. Mm, I didn't pick up on it. He's really subtle about it. Mm. Yeah, I've never, I've never read Ready Player One, but I have read pages of it that people post online. Yeah. And like, whenever, whenever people would make fun of him before, I think, I think uh, this doesn't seem. I mean, it can't really be that bad, can it? And then I read one which was literally just like a list of references, and I thought, Jesus Christ, this is awful. <laughs> this is worse mm. than I could have even possibly imagined. Uh, yeah, so we... I picked I picked it up on Kindle for like fifty p or something, mm. and it's just sat 
kind of with the little new icon blinking next to it for the best part of a year. Um, because like you say, when people post those things on, um, on Twitter, those pages, it, it just makes me think of that, um, that bit of Stuart Lee stand up where he's <laughs> talking about, um, Dan Brown, where he says, I'm going to read you a line from, um, the Da Vinci code. And he just opens a book and says the famous man looked at the red cup, but it, <laughs> <laughs> like that's not in the book. He just, he just, he just made that up to be indicative. And I keep thinking when I see the Ernest Klein things, I was like, surely that can't be a real piece of literature um, <laughs> and like that's just stopping me reading it and also kind of an act, like a sense of human decency as well <laughs> oh it's so back. bad I mean I, I think I paid 99 pence for it on Kindle and I still feel ripped off uh, not to go too much of a tangent but it is one of those things where it is kind of the worst embodiment of everything that comes under the umbrella of quote-unquote geek culture mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like family guy in that aspect where there's no jokes it's just references and it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I get it. I get it. But you do that about 14 times on every single page. And it's just exhausting. Actually, I hear that the other book he wrote, Armada, is worse. Uh, mm. Laura Hudson wrote a review of that book for Slate. And it is my favorite piece of criticism anyone has ever written. <laughs> it is just the most beautiful thing ever written. Uh, so I'm kind mm. of stunned that this movie exists. And I'm not even more baffled that Ernest Klein is referred to as the holy grail of pop culture in the trailer. Yeah. Whoa. Like, screw you. <laughs> yeah, every time that trailer plays, I just get irrationally angry. That and the oh. Justice League trailers, whenever those play before movies, <laughs> I'm just thinking, this culture's in a bad place. <laughs> this is Why horrible. is Mark Rylance in Ready Player One? I know he likes Spielberg, but did he rescue him from, like, a fire or something? <laughs> he he doesn't have down. to do this shit. Hmm. Um, I think did it, is he playing the role that Gene Wilder was going to play? Yeah, oh, basically okay. Willy Wonka, which is how he is referenced throughout the book. But you can't do subtlety in this book. You have to know every reference because that's how you know you're a good person. <laughs> that's how you know that you're smarter than everyone else because you get all these references to eighties geek culture that Ernest Klein masturbates over every night. <laughs> yeah, that's the part in the trailer as well. Like when they start playing bits of pure imagination, it's like, oh, stop stop over-egging this like this is already terrible enough you have to ruin a really beautiful piece of music yeah that's i've seen every spielberg movie released in my lifetime in the cinema except for maybe amistad because i was too young and yeah i just i think we have to miss that one same as i saw every pixar movie but this year broke that streak with cars 3 yeah i just i just can't put myself through <laughs> ready play you one. saw cars 2 in the cinema yeah let's go back and discuss that I I I thought it couldn't be as bad as everyone was saying it was, and I was so committed to the idea of keeping that streak going of having seen every Pixar movie in the theater. You're a monster. I am a monster. Look, I already said I paid to buy Batman versus Superman. You know my depravity. Yeah, yeah, the the police are going to start like uh, filing through your uh, digital film collection, Ed, and the evidence <laughs> is damning. And they're going to look at the ticket yeah. stubs for Cars Two. No, I burnt that. I, I burnt that in a ritual just to kind of cleanse myself. Mm. You've admitted it to it now, though, so there's a digital record that will survive forever. Fuck. Damn it. And we don't edit these ever at all, so we can't, can't remove that. Um, so to kind of uh, end, what are our, our favourite 
kind of king movies uh, or movies based on his work. Uh, for me, I think The Shining is, is kind of an obvious one. I think it's, it's absolutely incredible. But to go for one that's kind of... Uh, I'll, I'll go for The Mist, I think, is my favourite non-Shining mm. edition because it's really fun. I really enjoy it. I think Thomas Jane does a really good performance in it. But mainly because... Did you just say The Mist is fun? Uh, for apart from the thing about it that really isn't fun, um, <laughs> I was going to say because like for ninety percent of it, it's a kind of a fun, goofy B movie horror, and then it's really not. And the thing I used to love about it when that movie came out on DVD, there was I would say a six month period where I just showed it to people and did not tell them in any way what the end of the movie was like, and it was just it was just magical seeing their faces just fall and just the look of dawning terror show up on the face. Maybe I am a monster. You're right, I am a monster. But that was something I did yeah, for like I'm, six months. I'm starting to think twice about you, Ed. <laughs> but um, that's one of the re- that's one of the many reasons I like that movie. But that that ending going where it does, um, mm-hmm. it's just it is such a bold way to end a movie, which up until that point hasn't really hinted at the idea that it could be just so soul crushingly horrible. And also then to kind of end on what is essentially kind of like a Kirby enthusiasm style uh, kind of bit of awkwardness of like the the mist clearing and the soldiers showing up. It is, yeah, there's there's such a dark sensibility at play in that movie. Yeah, it's like it's the bleakest ending of any mainstream film I think I've any se- I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, because like that, no country. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, there's not a lot of competition for when you watch a movie and you just walk away feeling just like bad about the world. <laughs> mm, I think The Mist is probably uh, my favourite of the recent ones. Mm-hmm. I'd say uh, The Shining's obviously the best one, I guess. But Stand By Me has always had a, a firm, firm kind of spot in my uh, in my heart and mm. uh, kind of one I'll, I'll kind of be never be uh, oh sorry always be surprised when i go back and rewatch it that it's like oh you know this should have aged a bit and kind of maybe some of the sheen come off it but it, it never does it always always uh does the job yeah i mean stand by me is my favorite is one of my all-time favorite movies anyway it's just so impeccably constructed and holds up beautifully the, the i mean the emotional kick to that movie is still you know hugely effective in a way that i I always forget every time I go back to it. Uh, I would, I think Shining's probably the other one for me, but I'd give a, a shout out to the Shawshank Redemption as well, which I think has gotten almost a a bad rap in recent years. I think because it was on IMDb's top 250 films of all time for so long, uh, there's almost a sense that it's like, now it's suddenly too mainstream to like, even though it was basically a cult movie because it was such a huge flop when it was released. And it is, it's, it's one of the more sentimental King adaptations, but I think it has that kind of Frank Capra movie-style appeal to it that I still find very moving. And you know, that's a movie with some real brutality in it as well. Mm. You know, it's a movie set in a you know, prison. There's a, like, a crap ton of rape in that movie. Um, I, I, it's still one that feels really rewarding to go back and revisit as well. Um, but I, I mean, if you've never seen any adaptation of a King book or story before i think the shining and stand by me are kind of your two to go for if you want a hotter and a non-hotter if you're ever feeling very mm. um if you've got a few more hours try going for Tobe Hooper's adaptation of salem's lot which features mm. one of the more scary images in cinema which is the boy tapping on the window oh, so <laughs> i'm actually surprised that that <laughs> one hasn't been um 
options again. That feels like that should happen soon. It definitely feels like one that I've I see referenced a lot as like the stand was one for a few years and and it obviously was like the one that phase because Carrie Fukunaga was going to make it his follow up to True Detective like that was the one that everyone thought oh this is going to be great but I'm I'm pretty sure there have been rumblings about Salem's Lot being made in the past and that does feel like one like the original does like you say it has some indelible images and it is immensely creepy it does feel like one that could could be done now and if you have the right team behind it it could be really really effective but uh, that's always the problem with king's work is that sometimes you just get people who are there just to kind of do a job and don't really care and are akiva goldsman you know <laughs> it's um hmm. sometimes things just don't work out well i'm surprised bloomhouse haven't tried to option some of his work yet since they're on such a roll and basically you know swimming in that that sweet sweet horror cash right now so hmm. if they're listening go go get the rights to salem's lot because i know that there was a like a remake of the miniseries made about a decade ago with Rob Lowe in the lead which was a terrible idea um so mm. give that one a go I mean if you want something that will scare the shit out of people in the same way that it does like Salem's Lot is the way to go easily yeah putting Rob Lowe in the lead of a horror film is a terrible idea unless he plays it as Chris Trigger from Parks and Recreation <laughs> where ev- everything no matter what horrible consequences it has he plays with such boundless enthusiasm well if you watch him in the Salem Lot when he's got floppy black hair and he's wearing a leather jacket oh. Oh. so he's edgy so edgy mm. yeah the, the I think the only thing that's stopping Blumhouse is the fact that their budgets are always so low that the idea of spending like 20 million dollars on a king adaptation probably strikes them as like really risky (laughs) it's just like well we could make 10 movies for that and probably make more money but i think if they want to be major players and they want to kind of stay on brand i think going for an established like i mean they're they're doing halloween now you know it makes sense if they want to go back and just do uh, a king adaptation that Halloween is that's uh, David Gordon Green and um, Danny McBride, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah a crazy collection. David of Gordon Green, we could do a whole podcast series on 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 that guy's career trajectory. Yeah, right. <laughs> From George Washington to Pineapple Express in like eight years or whatever, it's it's kind of nuts. Yeah, but at least we got Eastbound and Down out of it. Mm, absolutely. I mean, like you know, I'm not disparaging any of his films because they're all interesting. Um, it's just just like how he manages to straddle. I mean, there's, there's that bit of philosophy, isn't it? It says the great man straddles two extremes. <laughs> and uh, he's certainly putting that to the test. Yeah, put your highness next to all the real girls. And that's the, <laughs> the entire breadth of American cinema, really. Hmm. It's like if Terrence Malick did Caddyshack as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Tell you one thing, that green would be shot so beautifully. Mm. 40-minute long shots of the green. Yeah. Like, like, and like, Bill Murray whispering. You're whispering really kind of like, well, we don't know what he's whispering, but it's into the era of gopher. <laughs> it's the gopher that's whispering. It's like the dinosaurs in Tree of Life. Mm. I think we've, I think, yeah, again, if anyone wants this, 2% is our standard fee. Uh, <laughs> for all of it. We'll split it three ways. Uh, I'll get, I'll get 50% because it's my deal. Well, Malik did say this week, Malik did say this week he's going to try and make more conventional narrative fil- films and, you know, it's been a while since Caddyshack Two came mm. out. Yeah, if he wants to, if he really wants to make a conventional movie, Caddyshack Three, yeah, directed by Terence Malick, is the way to go. Yeah, we need a modern day Rodney Dangerfield, though. That's the problem. Yeah, who doesn't get no respect? <laughs> um, hmm. 
Well, in this podcast, Ernest Klein. Yeah, Ernest <laughs> Klein gets no respect. Mm. Yeah, oh, we've ruined it. Yeah. We had a perfect, we had the last perfect idea in Hollywood and we ruined it by adding Ernest Klein. Yeah, yeah it comes to us all. Thank you uh, both for being on the show this week. Uh, Kaylee, where can people find you online? You can follow me on Twitter at Kayleanne, which is C-E-I-L-I-D-H-A-N-N. If you just search Kaylee Donaldson on Twitter, you'll find me. I'm the, a main features writer for Pajiba. I do hot takes over at Screen Rant and Sci-Fi Fangirls as well. If you like vampires and feminism, we're doing From Dusk Till Dawn on Bloodsucking Feminists this month, so come check us out there. Uh, good time to be talking about a Miramax movie, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> But if you just want to follow me on Twitter, I talk about movies and feminism and I post lots of pictures of Matt Nicholson. So, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matt, people can find you on this show. Uh, yeah, yeah. But also on Twitter. On, uh, you, I don't know if you've ever actually said what your Twitter is. Yeah, at the wooden kimono. Uh, I don't tweet as many pictures of uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of pictures of my dinner and stuff, mainly. Mm-hmm delicious mm. uh if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes or player fm stitcher overcast all the usual places you can also find us on facebook and on the aforementioned twitter we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from us i guess yeah and also goodbye from me again goodbye bye <laughs>